tuned in to episode 121 121 of the beyond the pond podcast this is the podcast which generally speaking brian and myself utilize the music of fish as a means of introducing a listener to other bands these are usually not jam bands as you know sometimes they happen as of late but usually not jam bands because we love fish we love fish fans we are hardcore fish fans very excited for summer tour but as you know by now, sometimes fish fans get a bit myopic, can give you stats, dates, minutiae, anything under the sun about their favorite band, but then you sell them, hey, how about the Stone Roses or My Bloody Valentine is spiritualized? And they say, are those fish songs? And I say, no, they are not. But we're here to do something about that. We are, we have been, you know it by now. We are on a mission. This isn't just a podcast where we get together and chat about music. We, we let that for other podcasts. You guys can just get together without purpose and talk about music. Here at Beyond the Pond, we are interested in one thing and one thing only, and that is conversion. We want to make sure that you, the listener out there, are listening to your fish and are getting some really good fish, but are also getting some other music. You're not just focused in one side of the plate. You can't just eat the mashed potatoes. You got to eat the Brussels sprouts too. You got to have the salad. You got to have the sweet potatoes. You got to have the turkey. You got to have everything. I don't know why I'm making Thanksgiving metaphors in the <laughs> middle of July, but it just like came to me. The point is you got to be equal opportunists about music. You got to have, you got to be a Renaissance man about music. You got to know a little bit about everything including a lot of bit about fish. And we're here today in an episode that I think we're both really looking forward to, where we are going to be talking about two much derided periods in fish history. And we're going to try to understand why these periods were derided in the moment, what they mean to us some years later, what they tell us about the evolutionary choices and evolutionary moments that fish go through, the transitional periods, if you will. And then we're going to spin it off and we're going to talk a bit about some music that um, we're coming out from a really interesting angle, but we're talking summer 2004 and summer 2016 here, trying to get a different perspective of what those tours meant, both 19 and seven years respectively since they happened. Absolutely. Like Brian said, you need to have a veritable cornucopia of foodstuffs in musical form, and we are working on that. So, some of the themes you expect to hear in this episode include the confounding nature of transitional fish, an oasis of jams, and crossroad moments in fish history. Normally, I would say, great, let's get to the fish, but... Before we do that, we've kind of uh, checked in at the halfway point in 2023. My goodness, time is flying by. So um, 
in lieu of answering a mailbag question, and we're going to get to those in the oncoming weeks, uh, we're kind of building up some questions. Please keep sending us your questions. Um, we're going to talk about each of our top 10 albums of 2023 so far. We are. And before we do that, there always has to be a bit of preamble, a bit of context setting. Um, we're halfway into 2023 thus far. I would say like 2022, this is now a successive year that feels like a return to quote unquote normal in terms of release schedule, in terms of concert announcements. We don't feel the way that we did in 2021 or my God, the way that we felt in 2020, where it was like, are we ever going to get back to just music coming out and concert tours being announced? Now it feels like there's almost too much happening. But Dave, I'm curious your thoughts halfway into this year. What are kind of your general themes of 2023 music so far? Um, kind of I, themes I find myself listening to music maybe by people that are my age or older. That's just probably, um, that's mm -hmm. often what happens when you age. You listen to music and kind of made by uh, men and women of uh, an older age group. Um, that being said, I've definitely certainly gravitated some excellent, excellent records this year. And, um, I know that I've found something I love. I'll listen to it. I'll get a bit of a chill or I'll say, oh yeah, this is my wheelhouse. I know this is what we're talking about right here. And there absolutely have been some albums like that. I mean, I've also, um, my number one album is, uh, from a group. It's a trio of people I'm assuming are in their late twenties, early thirties at the absolute oldest. So, uh, you know, I, still haven't listened to some music from the kids per se but my dad warned me early on as you get older your taste will change you'll start gravitating towards older music <laughs> i said no dad i'm gonna stay hip forever he's like you won't he was right too exhausting isn't it oh yeah it is it is too exhausting this is funny. I was at a 4th of July party yesterday. My friend put on Born in the USA because that's what you do. And some other guy said, is this a Springsteen? Is this like a greatest hits album? And we're like, no. Mm -hmm. All these songs are actually all on Born in the USA. He's like, no shit. Like, yeah. It is possible to record an album and all of the songs be high quality. It's possible. It is. But my God, like that, I mean, Born in the USA, it's like, wait, this is on there? This is on there? One after this is one. on there? I feel like the 80s were, you know, I think about like Joshua Tree. I think about Thriller. I think about Born in the USA. There were just, there were albums that would be released for like half the album had top 10 singles. And yeah. it just was like one after another, banger after banger. Um, I'm in a very similar boat with you. I think the biggest thing that has changed for me when I think thematically about music is, and I don't know if this is really a theme, but I think this will get into kind of my next question for you, but I feel like I've become very good at give me three songs off a record and I know if it's for me or not. And if it's not for me, I think I can rationalize why I'm not going to continue listening to it. Yeah. And with that, what is for me and and as as you know I'll kind of describe here as the list unfolds I'm that broad statement of Americana music and and I don't mean just like alt country I mean jazz and blues and rhythm and the pedal steel and some 
really warm horns and some weird experimentation that feels like it's from like a vaudeville type of type of era. Um, something that feels like it comes from like an urban wasteland. I don't know, like that whole melting pot for lack of a better term tends to be where my head and my heart goes right now from a musical standpoint. I think at this point in time, I'll listen to pretty much anything, but I really need something that feels like it's been plucked out of the ether of the American story. Okay. And that's just, that's like thematically where I'm at right now. I agree with you on the three songs. For me, it's got to be the first three songs. If your record's not grabbed me, the first few songs in the record, then you fucked up. Maybe I fucked up. It could be I fucked up or you fucked Like, that's that's the the beauty of it is nobody's wrong. No. It's just, hey, this isn't for me, and I'm going to go on to something new, and I'm going to listen to something completely different. Sometimes it even happens in the first 90 seconds of the first song. If I'm not feeling after 90 seconds, then, then my guard is up. But sometimes it's... That second song that makes you reconsider the first song, but well, well, and it, that that brings up a really interesting point because how do you approach listening to music throughout the year? What's kind of your strategy? I think that this is something that could be helpful to listeners out there who are like, how do you consume all of this new music? What well, what is your strategy on a week to week basis? Um, I'll kind of like pay attention to my favorite blogs websites release dates friends and just kind of come friday just add like you know five or six different records from apple music and then kind of just go through them during the week scan them and then if one if there's five records and i get one that i think will like stick with me that's great that's usually what the hit or miss ratio is nowadays get like six or seven albums if there's one that i think is great then go with god yeah i'm in, I'm in a very similar boat i I feel more organized and on top of my music listening process than I've ever been. Um, I will just throw records into a, I make quarterly playlists. So we're in the middle of January to March. We're just throwing records in. And as time comes, I'll just throw, I'll say these next three days, I'm not listening to anything but new music. And I just go through all those. And similar to you until I get caught up, let's say I've got 20 records I got to get through if four of those end up being records I love, cool. Like, awesome. That's that's a huge win. It's it's like baseball, you know? And some of these... And it's hard because new records get in the way of uh, Fish, Goose, Eggy, all the other jam bands on Nugs and whatnot that I've been paying for. I want to listen to that too. And there's only so many hours in a day. I have just gotten to a point where there is no casual listening for me. It's all listening projects. It's all mm. either catching up on new music, catching up on the Aggie tour, catching up on the Goose tour, creating playlists of jams I really like, creating playlists of albums I really like, going back through those, thinking about them. It's all like, I don't do any passive listening anymore. And I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I really enjoy it, but that's just kind of how I do it. And as a result, like I'm sitting here on July 5th with a list of 75, 80 albums that I just absolutely love from uh, 2023 so far. Um, so last question for you before we get to our list. How do you know that you found a record that you love? What is it that tells you not only I need to go past the three songs, but also this is a record I'm going to come back to? You just get the chill. You get the feeling. You put it on. 
you want to put it on and you just get like the serotonin in your brain saying like, oh good, I have found something that I'm going to listen to over again, over and over, something I'm going to keep listening to. It's just like the rush. And if you get it, build enough times, you know it. Like the first time I listened to Cavern on Picture of Nectar, I said, okay, this is going to be something very special to me for the rest of my life. Seldom will I ever find something quite as strong as that. But yeah, it's just, if you know, you know. Yeah, that rush is like, it's one of those things that, you know, I'll be going through emails at work, listening to a new record, and we'll just suddenly realize like, I'm really enjoying going through emails. And why am I really enjoying going through emails? Because this record that I'm listening to is really hitting me or I'm doing yard work and I'm just in the zone and I realize the record is part of it or I'm cooking dinner or I'm walking the dogs, whatever it may be. As I'm looking at my list of 10 albums that I've loved so much this year and there's a bigger list, like I said, all of them at one point made me kind of stop and just be like, fuck, I love this music. And that really is enough for me at this point because with a lot of these albums, they're really only getting like one to five listens throughout a year. And so I've really got to like you to want to go back to you. And uh, that's just like, that's the telltale sign for me. So let's um, let's jump into our list uh, before we go on and turn this into a top albums episode. We will obviously do our top albums of the year come December. And it'll be interesting to see how much this has changed. But Dave, run me through, let's start from 10 to eight. Give me what you got and why they're on your list. Okay. Number 10, I've got the national first two pages of Frankenstein. Um, BTP listeners will know that I really like this band song for song. It's a very strong record. I would have produced it differently. I don't think that the drums and the rhythm section kicks as hard as it should a few bit too much in the way of like tinny synthesizers. And I think I didn't listen to it as much when it came out because the best four songs were the four pre-release singles that I listened to a ton. Then the record came out and uh, the other songs are very good. Just not as good as the first four songs. There's also uh, the Taylor Swift duet on there, which will probably be their most streamed national song by several million streams. But it's a good album. If you uh, like The National, you will enjoy that record. Number nine, Foo Fighters. Here we are. Look, I enjoy the Foo Fighters. It's uh, basically what Dave Grohl did to Foo Fighters is take Husker Du and make them more palatable for the mainstream masses. Big, anthemic guitar rock and roll, a lot of big D major songs, and this uh, the album they made after their longtime drummer Taylor Hawkins died. I think it's the strongest album since 2011's Wasting Light and the fact that it's very compact, very anthemic, very well produced. I love listening to it at the gym. It gives me the strength to do uh, extra miles. So number eight, I've got Jess Williamson, Timing Accidental. Um, I think she's a Texas-based singer-songwriter, kind of. I think this is her fourth or fifth record, but she kind of came into focus for me uh, with the Plains album, which was... She did duets with, uh, of course, Katie, Katie Crutchfield from Waxahachie. This kind of builds upon that. Uh, the vocals are turned up very high. It's very good songwriting. You kind of get excellent like pedal steel 
in the background, the compliment, her lyrics and voice, but the Bing focuses on her voice and her lyrics. And this is, uh, she's really come into her own. It's kind of like an excellent road trip album. So that's what I got for 10, 9, and 8, Brian. It's all great picks. So my number 10 is uh, Natural Information Society, Since Time is Gravity. Uh, this is a jazz group from Chicago that I've loved everything I've heard from them since I was first hip to them in 2019. Uh, this is a long record. I've got two records in my top 10 here that are approaching like two hours. And so there's a lot of time required to really dig into these, but, uh, I feel like I'm just like in the zone with this band. When I throw them on, I can kind of be doing whatever. Um, it's one of those jazz records I can throw on in the house and it doesn't bug anyone. <laughs> it just kind of like hangs out and everyone enjoys it. Uh, um, which, which I'm, I'm, I'm always in for, uh, number nine, Jeffrey Silverstein, Western sky music. Um, buddy of mine sent me Jeffrey Silverstein back in 2020. I believe he put out a record. I believe it's called you become the mountain. And it kind of fuses this psychedelic cosmic country take with some spoken word tracks and western sky music just builds upon that it's beautiful it's a um it's a soundscape it's got really good narrative storytelling uh jeffrey's got this voice that just kind of hangs and feels like it's been there for all of eternity and uh really get a ton out of it um number eight lucille and lawrence english colors of air uh, there's a requirement on my top 10 list that there must be at least one heavy ambient album. This is that heavy ambient album. So um, I encourage anyone who likes those recommendations from me to go and seek this out. It's a beautiful, weighty record. An album called Colors of Air, spelled like Colors of Air. That's almost like a parody of like something that Brian Brink would be expected to like. <laughs> 100% Brinkman core. That is it. All right. <laughs> so my number seven, no surprise here, Rose City Band, Garden Party. Rose City Band, to me, are the ultimate summer chugle band. Put them on, forget about it, drive your car, sit on the couch, smoke your weed. Just uh, their discography is bulletproof, and I think I probably enjoy Garden Party more than the prior one uh, was an Earth Trip, which kind of had like a really burnt out COVID, like staring at the edge of the world vibe to it, whereas Garden Party kind of, you know, picks up the pace a little bit. Feels like a companion to Summer Long. Yeah, exactly. You know? Definitely more of a companion to Summer Long, more of um, back porch almondsy soloing like Summer Long. Number six, William Tyler and the Impossible Truth, Secret Stratosphere. This is basically like the closest William Tyler gets to having like a jam band because I mean, it's comprised of the best songs off of his solo records, but he's got a kick-ass band with him. And he says, it's basically kind of like psychedelic Hawkwind jam band meets like Dwayne Allman shit. And it's, it's impossibly in my wheelhouse. It's great. Um, they're coming to union pool with Garcia peoples and Brooklyn August 20th. I will be there with my recorder. Say hi. Number five, The Tubs, Dead Meat. This, um, I know we talked about this record earlier in the year, just like excellently jangly college rock. 
I think they're Scottish. Uh, the guy, he sounds like 80s Richard Thompson, and it's just uh, 29 minutes. Perfect little record. Love it. Brian, you got We're reaching a point in our countdown, in our list, where we have a lot of overlapping stuff, so I'm excited to, mm. to build upon what you've recommended. But my number seven is Lonnie Holly's Oh Me Oh My. He is a... Um, Long-lasting experimental artist from um, Birmingham, Alabama, 73 years old. This is one of the most just stunning records I've ever heard in my entire life. Um, He was born into the Jim Crow era in Birmingham. Um, He lived in a whiskey house. He lived on state fairgrounds and foster homes. Um, He picked cotton. He did graves. I mean, he lived a life that was incredibly challenging, incredibly difficult, and uh, was part of foster care system in Alabama in the 1950s that um, was almost like a uh, reformist school for young black kids that uh, he writes about here on this record and what that, how that impacted him uh, over the last 70 years. So very, very powerful, very uh, deep, deep American, uh, the, the original sin of America steeped into this record. Um, totally different take on Americana music is number six, Rose City Band's Garden Party. I echo everything you said. This is the, we're sitting around a fire, we're sitting on the back porch. The sun just dipped behind the trees. It's a little cooler now. Let's throw this record on and feel like everything is A-OK. Number five, William Tyler and the Impossible Truth, Secret Stratosphere. Uh, One of my favorite musical moments of this entire year came on Monday evening of this week, had close friends over, one of my best friends, Ryan Smith, my show-going buddy here in Denver. He and his wife came over, we grilled, we were watching the Goose uh, Show from Ashbury Park, awesome Goose Show, one of my favorites of the year. And then we built a fire, we're hanging out, and I said, have you heard the new William Tyler? And he goes, what new William Tyler? And I go, oh, buddy. And I put this record on, Secret Stratosphere, the live record. And we were just in total heaven, just passing the pen back and forth, drinking Topo Chico's, watching the fire, watching fireworks burst over our house. It was just a magical, magical moment. So uh, William Tyler, man, just endlessly, endlessly bringing us great music. Um, Dave, why don't you take us home with your four through one? Okay, number four. Jesse Ware, that feels good. 38-year-old British dance chanteuse. She's probably my favorite dance artist, vocalist working right now. In addition to being a great singer, she's got a great podcast. She's got three kids. I think she's a cookbook. She's just uh, a polymath. Does it all. And um, when I listen to her records, I've... Can I just correct you on the pronunciation of the album? Because... The exclamation point after that is one of my favorite things of the entire year. It, it is ah, that. That. Feels good. Feels good. Do it again. <laughs> one of those records that um, I haven't ever done cocaine, but when I hear like the second song for yourself, I want to like hoover a big rail and be like, I can't feel my face. <laughs> it's like. It's got that vibe. It's, yeah, it's got that. I can't feel my face vibe like uh like Thelma Houston's Don't Leave Me This Way, one of my favorite disco songs. So number three, 
Yola Tango, The Stupid World, uh, one of my favorite bands of all time. I think this is their 17th studio record. The only reason I know it's 17 is because I saw Ira Kaplan throw out the first pitch at a Mets game, and the Mets PA announcer said This Stupid World is their 17th studio album. And I think it's probably, God, their best album since 2013's Fade. Just yeah. uh, the most Yola Tango y sounding with your kind of grungy shoegaze velvet underground inspired guitar it's uh no band's 17th album should be as good as this stupid world so my number two is the waco brothers uh the men that god forgot so waco brothers are um long-running uh like country rock punk ensemble from uh john langford from the mekons uh based out of chicago kind of I wasn't a really huge Langford or Mekons fan until 2023. But what kind of got me into this band is um, the Waco Brothers fiddle player, a woman by the name of Jean Cook. She's a friend because she actually, um, her child is in uh, my daughter Hannah's third grade classroom. So she's a mom and she plays fiddle for Waco Brothers, lots of other bands. So she's on this record, listen to it. I'm like, wow, this is great. This is like dudes in their 60s, doing like Americana and country and it's political and it's anthemic and dudes in their fifties and sixties doing like country punk is exactly what I want to listen to. So that sent me down a Waco brothers and Mekons rabbit hole. And turns out the Mekons are one of like the greatest fucking bands ever. Their albums in the eighties are incredible. So, uh, yeah, 2023 will be the year I became a big John Langford fan. I actually, Saw Waco Brothers at this venue in New York called TVI a few weeks ago. They were great. Everybody there is wearing like WFMU shirt. Like, but these are my people. All right. So that was a very good, pleasant discovery. Number one, this is uh, the band of, I think, late 20s, early 30s I was telling you about from Memphis, Tennessee. Ibex clone. All channels clear. This is Basically, if Kevin Schultz, my buddy Valentine, decided he wanted to cover R.E.M. songs. Um, the guitarist guy, in the name of, I think it's George Williford, has this incredible finger-picking shoegaze style where he's kind of like using delay pedals and he's using his tremolo bar just to like... The finger-picking, it goes off like fireworks. And I actually saw them live a few weeks ago uh, down a basement in the East Village incredible live and they only got to play for like 33 minutes but they were i was so impressed with the live show and just so impressed with the guy's guitar technique and the songwriting and for me very exciting band so uh ibex clone all channels clear on uh the memphis label goner records venerable garage lock label check that out so my number four talked about this in i believe the last episode where we chatted about um 2023 fish and 2003 fish and kind of compared them plus talked about our favorite jazz records of the 2020s so far this is volume two of the jayad sessions by london odense ensemble um i gushed about this record then so i won't go into too much detail i just uh i love this the sonic landscape that it hangs out in it is deep psychedelic after midnight jazz that i'm very into uh number three this was Dave's number five, The Tubs Dead Meat. This is Jangle 
pop guitars, uh, Rolling Blackouts, Coastal Fever type guitar work. Yes, 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 yes. Richard Thompson. And I am here for every second of this album. Every person I've sent this to at some point has sent me a text back and been like, wow, this record just sounds awesome. Like, I just love everything about this record. So it is very much of a, uh, a road trip type of album that I'm into. Big Rolling Blackouts, Coastal Fever sound to it. Yeah. Big time, big time. Uh, number two, long lasting jazz, uh, Eastern mysticism musician, Laraji's segue to infinity in the same uh, realm as natural information societies since time is gravity. This is a long record. I think this is about a three hour long album. Four or five of the songs are 25 minutes long held in a weightless kind of Alice Coltrane type of space. Um, I'm all about this. This is the type of album that when I throw this on, it's like I enter some form of meditation that I just, I absolutely need on a regular basis, even though I, I rarely make it through the entire record. I love this album. It has been there for very early morning walks. It has blown my mind in terms of how long it takes for it to get from one place to another. But once it gets to that other place, it is completely worth it. Hence the title, Segue to Infinity. It's, it's almost like that scene in Interstellar where they're traveling through the black hole and you just see like eras and eons and galaxies going by you. It feels like that. Just, it's unbelievable. And then 23 years goes by. And number one for me, Yola Tango's This Stupid World. Um, I guess my biggest rationalization for this, it's a really, really good record. Um, it doesn't change the Yola Tango dynamics, but like, do we really need to at this point in time? It's like you said, this is their best record since Fade. And Fade is a record that has gotten an incredible amount of airplay for me since 2013. And there's just something about, kind of like when Dylan put out Rough and Rowdy Ways, there's just something about your favorite artist just showing you once again, we can do it. There's a reason why we loved spring 2023 fish. Huge reason for that was the band just said, Hey, we can do it again. And just proved it right then and there. And you get that from Yola Tango. So absolutely love this record. And, um, fallout might be top 10 Yola Tango song for me at this point in time. I just, I can't get enough of it. And on that note, let's get to the fish. So as we said at the top of the episode, we are talking about two tours that for two very different reasons are derided in larger fish history. Summer 2004 and uh, summer 2016. Two very different periods in the band's history, two very different reasons for why they were having these transitional kind of challenging periods. But we wanted to do something which was focus on two of the bright spots of these tours. In regards to summer 2004, it is the twist from the SPAC show on June 20th. And from summer 2016, it is the moment dance from night three of SPAC as well from July 3rd two jams that showcase that 
even within these challenging periods, Fish was still figuring out ways to push the barriers of what was possible, really connect in, you know, deep improvisational manners and leave us with a lasting jam that we can listen to decades later. But we want to talk, just kind of setting the table here about both of these tours. And so I'm curious, Dave, when you think about, because every so often Fish has these challenging tours. Um, I would argue they just had one last year, summer 2022. There were some ups and downs. It was good overall. I think it was better than both of these tours, but it definitely had its challenges. Summer 2019, fall 2019 was like this. But I'm curious, how can you, as someone who listens to Fish as much as you do, tell in your own mind that Fish is having a challenging tour? Well, Brian, challenging is relative because as you know, every show is a gift. The next show, man. It's all about the next show. The next show. Huh. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, there's a variety of factors. You're not something you can necessarily put your finger on. Ultimately, to me, it comes down to a lack of replay value. When there's very few songs that exceed 10 minutes, when the songs that do exceed 10 minutes, they kind of feel ever so slightly strained. Lots of individual songs, not a lot of jams. It really just comes... There's a lack of like replay value. I mean, you can tell on social media, you can tell within our text threads, if there's kind of like an air of not so much negativity when the shows just are only merely happening as opposed to people very much looking forward to night to night, to night after night after night. So, I mean, after a while, you can kind of get a feel for what's been happening. But really, I just think the lack of like replay value like you were talking about summer 2021 i find outside of maybe like atlantic city um i think whatever the tweezers they played the third night i think it was in like orange beach or something there's not very much i find myself gravitating to summer 2022 you mean oh summer 22 yes i'm sorry summer 2022 yeah exactly I just don't want you to get Hartford because we, we both love summer 2021, but summer 2022, yes. Summer, yes. Yeah. yes Hartford, Bethel, Atlantic City, some highs there, but a lot of yeah, like Jones yeah. Beach, Alpine Valley, a lot of just kind of middle of the road type of fish experiences yeah. that are still fun I'll at never times. listen to Jones Beach ever again, even though I think they played a pretty good uh, leaves at one of those shows. Just love that version. Not feeling it. Right. Yeah. I, I, I think... You know, and referencing our, our text thread with our buddy Josh is, is a good way to do it because I think that, you know, we went through this in like a singular show uh, with Berkeley Night One. So it's, it's a fun reference point where I think we all were both, by the time they're opening set two with My Soul, we were all kind of like, okay, yeah. this is a show where the band kind of tried a few things. There was, I, I seem to recall a curtain with early on in the show. I feel like there was a jam that I'm overlooking in set one. That, you know, kind of excited us, but overall the flow seemed a little bit clunky. Songs were just kind of being tested out. Let's see if this works. And oftentimes a fish is seen if something works. It's not necessarily working because so much of what works about fish tends to be that flow state where they're calling out a song, even if it's not the song you personally would predict. You're like, shit, I can't argue with this. This worked out perfectly right here. And then... Right everything flipped and they go into this tweezer, simple rock and roll segment where you're just like, okay, 
when you're just letting the music play you rather than you play the music, things just happen. And I've got to imagine that is a very amorphous thing on stage that the band can't turn on, turn off a switch and say, no, now we're going to be in the flow state. That is something that comes and that is something that comes without, I'm sure you can get yourself there, but it's not something you can, you can, you can direct there. And so when you're not hearing that and when you're hearing a lot of like, okay, we're going to play these three songs and they just kind of feel like three songs put together and then we're going to play a stash and then we're going to play these three songs and then we're going to do this. It, it never necessarily connects around a full, you know, tour that's, that's fully working. Um, so shifting gears to the first tour in question here, summer 2004, this was famously the tour that led up to Coventry. This, this happened across 12 shows across two months. It's just amazing how few shows that they played in this, in this summer, they announced the breakup in May. They played Brooklyn, SPAC, Deer Creek, Alpine in June, Hampton, Great Woods, Co- uh, Camden and Coventry in, uh, in, uh, August. And then they were done from your perspective, what went right and wrong in summer 2004? Well, I mean, summer 2004 was unique in that they like announced the breakup before they started the shows. So they kind of had like this sort of Damocles hanging over their heads the entire time. And as a result, summer 04 kind of definitely has like some Thelma and Louise going off the cliff, go for broke energy that you don't get anywhere else. It sounds like sometimes they're staring to the abyss, farting their way out of it. Not today, Satan, but it's um, parts of summer 2004 are often so incredibly sloppy that it's almost like it was in their heads. The band's like, all right, I'm breaking up. We don't care anymore. Why bother with the lyrics? Why bother playing in the same time signature as the other guy? I mean, it was some parts that were very hard to listen to. And the set lists are also, much like they were in 2003, kind of willfully weird. I mean, they were trying to incorporate songs from Undermine, trying to incorporate songs from uh, like Round Room, you had things like Anything But Me and Friday and just that really had no business being played showing up in the middle of like second sets. So when it's good, it's very good. And like I said, it has an energy that can only be made by musicians that know that the end is near. So let's leave it all on the table and go out in a blaze of glory. But I think that the tour was so in their heads that it kind of also resulted in some... I wouldn't say embarrassed, maybe more like some unprofessional playing. Yeah, I feel like, you know, 2.0 always gets lumped together as this one era. But I think as time has uh, eclipsed us here, as we're 20 years from 2003 right now, we realize that 2003 and 2004 are obviously very different years in terms of the approach of the band. And I feel like at the time, one thing that makes 2003 really appealing is there's a lot of beauty in these cracks. It's a little bit sloppier than even in the late nineties. Uh, there's this rough rock edge to the music, um, very blues psychedelic edge to the music. That is a different type of fish. It's a different sound of fish, but there's beauty within that. And in 2004, those cracks are widening even further, but there's still, there's still moments in there. And I think, you know, this set in question that has the twist really showcases that 
even amidst all this darkness, when there's so much happening from a personal standpoint with this band, just demons just popping up left and right. Plus, like you said, the looming announcement that, oh shit, we committed that we're breaking up. We know we need to break up, but we're coming out. We're still playing really good jams. In some cases, we're playing really good sets. This set here on July, on uh, June 20th, 2004, Ghosts, Seven Below, Twist, You Enjoy Myself. I mean, there are reports that the band walked off stage and Mike said, if we played like that every night, we we continue playing the music together. Like we could, we could keep this thing going. And so there are these moments throughout the summer that give you a sense that maybe there was a way for this to continue, even though ultimately, you know, as, as we become very clear in August that the demons were just too overpowering and the band needed to take a step back at this point in time. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think ultimately, do you like this tour? Do you like summer 2004? Like what, what are your preferences in terms of listening to this? Hmm. I like these back shows a lot. I like the Brooklyn shows. Um, great woods night two, I think is quite enjoyable. I think they're kind of exhausting and not entirely fun to me knowing that I'd rather listen to an era of fish where, they had the future ahead of them and they were happy and things were bright and they know that they could keep going and keep things interesting and kind of always looking forward to the next thing. Whereas obviously summer 2004 has an air of uh, finality to it and the band sounds exhausted and my ears get exhausted and just kind of knowing that they weren't in a good spot doesn't make it something I want to really go back to that often. That being said, the two Saratoga shows are incredible. I mean, if indeed Mike did say that when he left the stage, he wasn't wrong. Like the, God, I mean, the Piper from what the first night is SPAC, that's like some people's favorite fish jam ever. No, I don't agree. I can see the argument. It's not a crazy argument. Like if you happen to be at that show and it's one of your last fish shows and they're doing that big Tweezer reprise jam, you just probably... I could see myself running in place, screaming my head off. That's like that level of just, just like reckless abandon. Yeah. I mean, there are moments like I'm looking at the second set of Deer Creek Night 2, 624. Tube, Antelope, Wedge, Timber, Caspian, Simple, Walls of the Cave. The tube mm. is really, really, really good. And to follow it up with Antelope and the Wedge felt like a callback to an earlier era. And while I don't hate the rest of the second set, I think it's actually quite good flow. It ultimately, the band just kind of loses it. They're on such an emotional high point from the tube through the wedge that when the slop comes in for some of these songs, it comes for everyone. And it's one of those things that just like, it overtakes complete sets. And I think about, um, you know, Coventry night one, has the second set that begins with one of the best ACDC bag jams I've ever heard. And it's, it's focused and it's dark and it just has this like energy to it. That sounds like a band that is completely locked in and is nowhere near breaking up. And later in the set, they can't even play David Bowie and they play this version of 46 days. that's three minutes long and just doesn't even give you any sort of a, uh, a semblance that like they know how to play music. And by the following night, they, they couldn't even put full songs together. So 
I understand that from your standpoint. Um, one last question about summer of four for you. Um, cause I think we both know that, you know, that, that comment from Mike about if we played like this, we could, we could, we wouldn't even have to break up. I think we both know that the band needed to break up. That was really, really important. Um, but what do you think would be a historical view of fish at this point in time, if they had never returned post Coventry? I think that they'd be seen as a great jam band that didn't have the longevity of the Grateful Dead. But knowing that the band members kept their health and sanity intact using the bad examples set by the Grateful Dead. But I think that instead of maybe legendary, they would be seen as a great mid to late 90s party. And I don't even know if that, if they had just ended right then and there, I don't even know if jam bands would be as big a thing as they are now. Like, I don't know if you even have things like the Peach Fest, if Fish just calls it quits in 2004, because there were other jam bands. I mean, at that point, you had like your Moe's and your Humphreys McGee, and I mean, a lot of the bands that were big in the 90s, kind of like Strange Folk and Ominous Sea Pods, packed it in at that point or have like been starting to. But yeah, if Fish doesn't come back, I don't know if you get to the big jammy fests like we have now. Maybe you're not even talking about Eggy. Maybe those guys don't see Fish in like early 3.0 and decide to go on to something else entirely. So they would have been seen as the ultimate party band that knew when to say when, but perhaps not legends. I, I agree with that. I mean, I think, I think there's a lot there. I think ultimately... Um that redemption angle that I think is so important with fish 3.0 and the fact that they were able to get it together, the fact that they were able to get their health in order, the fact that they were able to get the ship righted in a very professional way says as much about the legacy of fish as things like big Cypress and fall 97 and, um, December 31st, 95, you know, these, these huge moments in fish history where the band was young and it was the first time that they did it. The fact that they worked through the process of reclaiming that they could be that band again, and then have shown us new sides and new shades of who fish is in a way that nobody could have predicted when they left in 2004 is as much, if not more of their legacy now than the, the, supposed peak period of the late 1990s. Um, so you lose that. And I think the idea of the jam band festival, I've never thought about that, but like, I'm just trying to think about jam bands in, you know, on what was it like September 30th, 2008, like the day before fish announced their comeback. I, I wasn't even, you know, I'm just one person, but I wasn't even listening to or considering jam bands at that period in time. That might have been like the most outdated music in my brain. And I, I had no plan of action or desire to get back into the jam band scene. And, you know, then Fish comes back and it, compl and the way that they've attacked live music since 2009 with webcasting, with shows coming out 15 minutes after they conclude, um, with the amount of social media marketing that they utilized in like 2009, 10, 11, and 12, where you got these Instagram uploads and you get that one jam that was captioned in high res video that was released on Facebook and Instagram the next day. And like 
all these ideas that they've given to young bands of how to market themselves and how to use their live show and the way that, you know, now we see Goose and Eggie do this and Dogs in a Pile, Pigeons, whatever, like the whole list of jam bands, like them or not, but those who um, really know how to utilize their platform to say, here's who we are. If you want more content from us, you were going to give you endless content. Fish mastered that and that is as responsible for jam band success now as, you know, them being able to be the headliner at a number of festivals that were emerging in the late, oh, late 2000s. Um, shifting gears here to a, a sunnier period in fish history, but still a challenging one. Summer 2016. Um, I think we can all agree coming on the heels of what happened in the world of fish in summer 2015, where we got incredible song debuts, amazing string of shows, Trey playing fairly well, the Magnaball Festival, um, some amazing moments, uh, both at Dick's as well as MSG to close out 2015 and open 2016. Summer 2016 felt a bit like a... I don't want to say step backwards. Yeah. A little bit of the hangover. It's just kind of like the, um, you know, the placid next day. It's good, but it's not what happened yesterday. What happened yesterday was epic. So how can today, can today be more epic? Maybe, but usually it's not. Usually it's a little bit of a, Hey, let's get back to normal. And summer 2016 to me felt like we accomplished all this shit last year, but we don't want to repeat what we did last year. So we're going to tweak it in some ways. Plus we've got these new songwriting ideas and we're going to figure out how all this meshes. And by year's end, it really meshed. Like the back half of 2016 is amazing. Dicks, uh, lock in fall, most of MSG, amazing, amazing stuff. But summer tour is that transitional moment. And so I want to ask you, Dave, because you and I met for the first time in summer 2016, outside of Wrigley Field, we both have very similar feelings about that show, uh, about those shows, which I've said before on this podcast, but the fact that we were both honest with each other about not liking night one of Wrigley Field is part of the reason that we became friends and we have a podcast. Cause I was like, if this guy can be honest about this with a new fish fan or with a new fish friend in his life, he can be honest about anything. And I need that honesty in my life. So I know you're on the same page with me, but I want to ask you, why does fish seem to have this penchant to follow up an incredible year with a down year? And I reference 96 following 95, 2014 following 2013, 2016 following 2015. Why, why do you think this happens? I think it kind of maybe takes them a year to kind of really get inspired again, get the inspiration back. I mean, they're always going to be inspired. No, it seems like obviously 2015 was a huge year with Fairly Well. That was incredibly exciting for Trey and for Fish fans. The summer that came afterwards when Trey kind of rediscovered his love for playing rhythm guitar was incredibly exciting. 2016, it just felt like a little bit of a hangover. I know they were trying to introduce a lot of the songs that would end up on um, the Big Boat album, which is probably my least favorite Fish Studio album for a variety of reasons, but neither here nor there. Um, it's just when you kind of reach not so much perfection with the level of inspiration as in 2015, sometimes it's just difficult for it to carry over. I mean, 2016 
felt to me a lot like Fish in 1996, which yeah. everyone agreed was not so much a step backwards, it's like a lateral from 1995. But again, as you got towards the end of the year, 1996, things picked way up. Totally. And certainly fall, holiday 2016 was extremely good. God, like the MGM Las Vegas shows that mm. October 2016 are out of this world. Those shows are incredibly good. But I'm just hesitating to say uninspired because Fishes and Trey, those guys, they're like the epitome of of inspiration. But sometimes when you come off such a high year, it might take you like another way to see, okay, we don't want to repeat ourselves, but how can we maintain while at the same time trying to find some new angles? And sometimes it takes them a little bit of time to get the new angle, resulting in, you know, somewhat less inspired. I think that's a really fair way to say it. And that's something that like, I'm almost, cause you know, we're, we're, as we're recording this, we're about 10 days out from the start of summer tour. And I think part of the reason we wanted to do this episode is we have no idea what's going to happen this summer tour. We had an amazing spring tour. Um, we had a really good MSG run back in December. Um, but this summer tour could be, you know, I think everyone's expecting because it's kind of a mini Baker's dozen and it's, you know, a similar run of shows leading up to that. Plus we've got four nights at Dick's again. We've got a small And spring tour. was really good. And spring was really good. And it's the 40th anniversary that like all the chips are aligned for it to be a really epic tour, but we just don't know. And I think what you just said is really fair and it kind of shifts perspective in my brain. Like some people take the perspective that like, you, you joked about this earlier, but like, man, every show is just a gift. And, you know, Fish just walks on stage, man, and just every time magic just happens and those four guys. And while I agree with that to a certain extent, I also think it is somewhat of, somewhat of an insulting take at what these guys are capable of creating. And there is a vast difference between an incredible Fish show and just a moderately good Fish show. And, and that is not to say a moderately good fish show is not a good thing. It is just to say that like an incredible fish show is some of the best music that you will ever hear and ever experience. And you are literally, um, witnessing brilliant musicians lock in and connect in a unspoken way that rivals great basketball and rivals great writing and rivals great filmmaking. And it just is one of those things that just like all this comes together in a way that you almost cannot describe fully because there is real magic there. And so I wonder, and I don't know, I have no backing evidence to this, but my interpretation would be that I think in line with what you just said, the band sometimes has these periods where they maybe not consciously, but kind of have their foot off the gas a little bit and allow themselves to just coast and allow themselves to just find that inspiration and give themselves five to six shows to find that inspiration and not force it because when it comes, it comes in droves. And I think summer 2016 is a great example of that where it starts slightly slow. They introduce some new songs. They don't push too deep in terms of exploration and jamming. Um, there's a lot of shows where it's just kind of like, huh, you're playing that song right now. Hey, that jam sounded like it might've had some promise. Why'd you guys cut it short? And 
the band slowly but surely. And I think it just took them longer in summer 2016 because that tour is very famous for the final night of the tour is potentially the best show of the tour. The Chula Vista? The Chula Vista show is incredible. That show kind of kickstarts. Lockin is really good. Dix is incredible. Fall tour is really good. MGM, uh, Vegas is really strong. MSG, and this is all leading up to the Baker's Dozen. So I almost feel like there's a sense that the band sometimes is not deliberately coasting, but is saying perhaps subconsciously, perhaps it's a band meeting, perhaps it's a, hey, how are we feeling going into this? I don't know. But there is a sense of rather than just repeating what worked in the past, let's just wait until we find what is going to work here. Um, so that's my take. I think it kind of goes hand in hand and I'm curious your thoughts on this. I almost see now in hindsight, seven years on summer 2016 as an essential break between summer 2015 and then this extended peak of the Baker's dozen into new year's 2018. I've got to imagine you, you feel similar to that. Yeah, I would certainly agree with that. I had fun in summer 2016. I saw some decent shows that year. It was also, um, Summer 2016, that's a time of, of innocence before we uh, thought Hillary Clinton was going to become our next president. So I kind of look back on it fondly in that sense. It's funny. Um, the jam, the MoMA dance from July 3rd, 2016, I had kind of forgotten about just because I know that Saratoga show outside of that jam is not very good. And I was driving in my car with the family about two weeks ago listen to Fish Radio, and on um, Sirius XM, they had uh, that crowd control where they take a person and he picks five songs and talks about the songs. So the guy said he's going to pick, like, the moment dance on July 3rd, 2016. I thought, why the hell is he picking a moment dance from, like, SPAC 2016? That's not a good <laughs> show. It's, that's not a good tour. It's, like, going to be one of those, like, nostalgic, my first show, buddy type things. No, it was a great... 17-minute jam, and then you can tell because Trey hits uh, what I like to call the business time chord. You know, it's uh, like Fly the Concords. It's business time. He hits a big walk chord, and you're like, all right, it's on. It's so on. So uh, thanks, crowd control guy. You showed me. It's interesting because, yeah, that, that MoMA is this kind of island in the – or oasis in the desert, I guess is a better way to put it um, – it is this moment where everything that you know about what fish is capable of from a communication standpoint, an improv standpoint, from a show stopping energy standpoint, all happens in that moment. Dance. It's a legitimately great jam. It's not just 16 minutes with a bunch of vamping. It is a fully formed journey um, that ends up in twist in a really nice way, but it is in one of the worst fish shows I've ever heard in my entire life. Um, yeah. From a setless construction standpoint, from a flow standpoint, from an energy standpoint, it does not sound like the night before a holiday at one of the band's hometown venues. Um, they crush SPAC. Like, they just destroy SPAC. Every time they're there, it is one of the best places to see fish. I've been both outside on the lawn, which is wretched, depending on where you're at, but also quite nice if you're down close. And I've been inside enough times to know inside of the pavilion at SPAC is one of the best places to hear a rock show. It sounds amazing. If you're up on the balcony, it just like, it 
vibrates up and down and it's it's fucking so cool and so much fun and to throw a show like this out there but then to converse it with a jam that is so good it's just it, it, it's it's almost summer 2016 in a nutshell it's the conundrum of that um before we get to the jams because we're going to listen to a little bit of the twist and the moma i just there is a very strange theme across 2016. It is these recital shows. And there are three of them in particular. Portland, Maine from July 6th, the show after this MoMA dance happened. The Forum in Los Angeles from July 22nd, the second to last night of tour. And Grand Prairie night two a incredibly famous show for all the wrong reasons on October 25th. If you are unfamiliar with these shows, it is not that you are a noob. It's that nobody would ever recommend these shows to you. There are like 30 songs in each of the shows. There's no flow. There are no jams is there. They're very unique experiences. It's like fish plucked 1992 fish and plopped it into 2016 <laughs> fish with modern songs, but with half the energy. I don't want to show my hands too, too soon here. I want to hear your thoughts. What do you make of these shows? What do you make of the recital shows of 2016? Well, Portland was really sad because uh, obviously that second set, what there's like the tide turns, there's like a mic song with devotion to a dream. I think they put the line. It's just, it's a horrendous second set. And it's unfortunate because the Cumberland County Civic Center in Portland is a legendary fish venue that's usually killed. They don't usually play much indoors in the summer. So they play this tiny classic hockey arena indoors and just put down that second set. It was it was sad. Um, I've never listened to the forum show. So I just know it's bad. I haven't listened to it. There's nothing will get me to listen. There's just no reason to listen to that concert unless you tell me otherwise. No, there's none. I will okay. just, my, my story about the forum show, cause the Portland show is very sad. You're right. And it, it these shows are a chore to get through. Um, I don't recommend right. people listen to them. If you're going to listen to a recital show from 3.0, I would honestly listen to Grand Prairie. Well, yeah, Grand Prairie, because man, that is a, <laughs> that is a commitment to a bit. That is like a, yeah. I think you should leave episode uh, where you're just like, <laughs> no, you're not playing Friday now. You're not actually playing. Oh my God, they're playing Friday now. Um, but I, if you're going to listen to a recital show, I would recommend um, the Meriwether Post shows from 2011. Those are, if, okay. if ever Fish decided to put 30 songs together in a way that actually works really well, though those shows have it. But um, the forum, my story about the forum is, uh, so summer 2016, I had a, nine to 10 month old and um, was just fucking exhausted all the time. Like I wasn't exercising because I was exhausted all the time and my son wouldn't sleep and work was really hard and it was really fucking hot in Maryland. And I was just like, God damn it. Like every day I was just like, God damn it. And then Fish wasn't playing this great tour and they played this amazing tour the year before. I was like, what is wrong? Like, what is going on? Plus Donald Trump might be president. Like, what is wrong with the world? And I just remember I'm, I'm on the East Coast. So they play these West Coast shows that don't start until 11 o'clock at night. So there's no way I'm listening to them. They're not webcasting every show. 
But I remember the forum show happens and I wake up at like two 30 in the morning, three o'clock in the morning to my son crying again. And I open the phone as I'm walking into his room to go hold him for like 25 minutes while he falls asleep again. And I pull up the live fish app to see if the new show is posted from the forum. And I take a look at the set list and I threw my phone and I just said, God damn it. <laughs> it was so annoying Man. on paper. And I went and I listened to it once and it's just not a very fun show to listen to. Grand Prairie though, that is, um, you wrote in our notes here. You, you got to read what you wrote in our notes. So if you're familiar with the card game Hearts, the idea is that you're actually supposed to, I don't know entirely how it works, but you're supposed to have low points. Like you win at Hearts by not like getting a lot of points. You want to get rid of your cards. Yeah, right. You want to get rid of your cards. Or in the alternative, you could do what's called, uh, what's called Shoot the Moon, which is basically playing as bad as possible to get the highest score possible. I think it's like a score of like 100. So you say you, you can win by shooting the moon, which is playing like so bad that it has to be on purpose. And Fish was fucking shooting the, for the moon on Grand Prairie. That second set, it's it's like a bit. I have friends who are at that show. They were, were uncomfortable. They were like squirming in their seats or they, because Grand Prairie, it's actually like kind of like a big indoor theater that has like seats like it's 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 like seven thousand people which is still like you know a huge theater but small for fish yeah they were thinking like is the band are they sick are they trying to tell us that they're going to break up is like does one of them have food poisoning like there's no there's no explanation that can possibly be in a set this bad like i'm just gonna read this i'm just gonna read this set to people because it is it is stunning stealing time from the faulty plan backwards down the number line into life boy meat stick the line tide turns into taste into friday which was busted out the first time in 325 shows since coventry the first time since coventry waves into julius and good times bad times um you cannot convince me you cannot convince me that the band didn't know what they were doing. There was yeah. absolutely no idea that you go stealing time number line. Okay. They faded into life boys. So maybe they just wanted to play it and then go. Now's a good time for meat stick. No segue, no fade. Now's a good time for the line. Let's throw another ballad. How about tide turns a new one? Something that people aren't really familiar with. Oh, taste song that doesn't really fit this era. Oh, let's go for a massive bust out right now. Really shock people with, sorry, Tom, if you're listening, the worst fish ballad of all time. And then let's end with a non-jammed out waves, Julius, the ultimate blue ball song, and then good times, bad times, because, all right, we just did. I mean, (laughs) you cannot tell me that you play that set and you don't know what you're doing. So, um... Yeah, listen to the fish recital shows from 2016 if you want uh, to just be confounded. So on that note, let's get to some of these jams. Let's listen to a bit of a mashup. The jam from uh, The Twist from June 20th, 2004. And going into the MoMA Dance from July 3rd of 2016. Both from the Saratoga Performing Arts Center in Saratoga Springs, New York. Thank you. 
thank you. Thank you for everyone out there who's still hanging with us, who um, gave us the time to talk about challenging periods in fish. I know that it's sometimes not appreciated in the community to talk about fish as though they could ever do anything quote unquote wrong. I think Dave and I have enough love for this band and you out there, you are our loyal listeners know that we ultimately love fish, but there are periods that are highs and lows and in the middle and it's worth considering and it's worth discussing that it's worth having that discourse. I thought that was a lot of fun. I hope you all enjoyed that. And I hope you enjoyed two of the highest points of two very challenging tours, the 620 2004 twist and the 73 2016 MoMA dance. Um, for our second segment, I think we've come up with a really fun way to look at similar moments in music, like what we just talked about there. And so this, we are titling is a clunker of a name, but I really like the title of this segment. It is favorite songs from albums. We don't like by artists we love. So in the same spirit of picking two really big jams out of two fish tours that we don't love, we are picking our favorite songs off of albums that we don't love, but from artists that we absolutely love. And so this is going to kind of allow us to get into the weeds a little bit about what makes a great album from a great artist, what makes a not so great album and what, what, what happens when there's still a really good song on those albums. So we're going to talk about why we love these artists, why we don't love this album and why we love this song, what this song means to us. Dave, why don't you kick us off here with your first selection from this segment? First selection is Rush, who are one of my favorite bands of all time. As listeners know, maybe my favorite non-jam band. I discovered them when I was 13 years old and was just hooked. Everything about the progressive rock band I love. And the album I'm going to talk about is um, called Snakes and Arrows. This is their second to last album. I believe it came out in 2007. It was produced by this like Hesher dude who looks like he would send sell you stuff at Guitar Center named Nick Raskulinitz, who I think his problem was that he was just in awe of Rush and felt so privileged to be the producer that he kind of uh, didn't help them do things like write good songs or know how to say no. It's just... It's kind of like a slow record. It's a clunky record. It just doesn't have much in the way of interesting music. That is, almost sounds more like a King Crimson album than Rush. It's kind of mushy. However, the lead-off track, Far Cry, was the pre-release single. It's awesome. It's propulsive. It has like an inside joke because the guitarist Alex Lifeson uses this like famous chord called the Hemispheres chord in this song. It's catchy when they play it on stage. It's got pyrotechnics. Fucking awesome song. Kicks off the record. I'm like, wow, this is going to be great. Nothing else on the record lives up to it. <laughs> At all. Like, there's a song on that album called, like, Brave is Faced. There's a song called Good News First. Like, this is, this is Neil Peart. Like, rest in peace. Incredible lyricist drummer. Don't give me a fucking song called Brave is Faced. Like, you know, that's that's not cool. So... Maybe my least favorite Rush album. I even put it lower than their debut album. But Far Cry is a fucking banger. So one of these days, you're going to have a Beyond the Pine all about 80s Rush that I'm going to force Brian to listen to. 
so you can have that to look forward to. You don't got to, you don't got to force, you just got to schedule it and then, and then I right. just get to work. That's that, this is going to be, it'll be like when we did Genesis and I spent two weeks only listening to Genesis albums and I was like, how have I overlooked this music for so many years? Um, which I wouldn't say I've overlooked Rush. I just, I don't listen to it every day, but I, I feel like I should. I feel like I should for a period in time. We got to do this. Um, so my record comes from my favorite artist of all time. It's Bob Dylan, who put out a record in 19, in 1990 called Under the Red Sky. This is an album which when I went through in summer 2020 and listened to every Dylan album in a row and ranked them all, I had this third from the bottom in tier six, uninspired, but still Bob. Uh, a, 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 a tier that I'm recognizing right now as Empire Burlesque, which needs to change. I probably have to do this whole Dylan re-listen again because Empire Burlesque has uh, jumped up my list. That's probably like a tier three fascinating experimentations album for me now. But anyway, Under the Red Sky. This album came out after the record Oh Mercy. This was produced by Jack Frost, otherwise known as Bob Dylan and Don Was. This opens famously with the song Wiggle Wiggle, which may or may not be the worst Bob Dylan song of all time. Uh, this album also includes Handy Dandy, 10,000 Men's Not That Great, Cats in the Wells, all right. TV Talking Song. I mean, there's just a lot on this album that is almost like Bob was just uh, utilizing the studio space to do basically just like vocal lessons and vocal like exercises to just get stuff down on paper for a future record that would be brilliant, which seven years later we get time out of mind. And related to all of that, I say time out of mind because the fourth track on this album, Under the Red Sky, Born in Time, is like a Dylan song from a completely different period and a different record and a different era. This is one of those everlasting Dylan songs that the second you hear it, it doesn't matter what period in his career it came out of. It's almost like Joker man in that standpoint or Mississippi. It's the type of song that when you hear it, it just sounds like Bob Dylan. The poetic verses just unfurl in front of you. The melody aches and pains your heart. It just, it blows you away how much is, is, is evoked in his subtle changes and in, in the guitar behind his vocals that just, it, 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 it aches of sadness. And lyrically, it's one of my favorite songs that he wrote during this period in time. This has been, uh, in recent years covered by the war on drugs. They do this just incredibly well. And I love that they're picking this era of Dylan to cover. Highly recommend listening to born in time. Do not recommend listening to under the red sky, unless you are doing it for a listening project of some sort. It's just not worth the time. It just, it just isn't. It's just there. Um, Dave, what's your next pick? Next pick is REM. One of the greatest American bands the past 40 years. Everything about them, nearly bulletproof discography, incredible songs, incredible evolution. It's Ari fucking M. And yet... Their 2004 album, there we go, 2004 again. <laughs> their, uh, their 2004 album, Around the Sun, 
Oh my God. I hate this record so much. This is <laughs> this is one of those uh uh-uh, uh no you don't records. Most bands as good as REM don't have an album like this, but this is just it basically sounds like the disembodied head of Michael Stipe talking over laptops and machines and noises, and the band basically said they had no communication when they made it. It was produced by a guy named Pat McCarthy, who I think is probably best known for producing uh, Luna's Penthouse and uh, Pup Tent albums. And kind of like a slowcore, droney, clever band like Luna, why is the guy got to produce R.E.M.? He doesn't have to produce R.E.M. It's just, it's, it's a very bad album. However, there's some good songs on it that could nevertheless really have benefited from a remix, benefited from a, getting a guy to play real drums, just like anything. And the title track, which is the last song on that album, I think is a good song that reminds me of something that probably could have been on R.E.M.'s Green album from 1988 if it had just had something resembling like a decent drum sound. I don't think there's any drums on the song. It's just... Uh, there's a good tune in there that's dying to get out, but the production doesn't do it any favors. Some of the Around the Sun songs got better when they played them on stage, but um, like the next band I'm going to talk about, it's just an outlier what is otherwise a very solid discography. Uh, they made two albums after Around the Sun, uh, being Accelerate and Collapse Into Now, both of which are very good. Kind of uh, like Redemption. I think they understand that they needed some redemption. But yeah, Around the Sun fucking sucks. The title track is okay. It's the best I can say about that album. That is a record that I feel like has come up multiple times during the uh, run here of Beyond the Pond. And I think part of it is just, it is cathartic for you to talk about how much that record upsets you and how much it... uh, I don't know. It just it 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 feels like this uh, scarlet letter in our uh, discography. The record is like if mommy and daddy sit you down, they said they're getting divorced. That's like <laughs> that's like how I feel when I think about around the sun. I even think like I might have like called out Mike Mills on Twitter back when I used Twitter for like around the sun. I don't even think he like. <laughs> I, I I think he may have insulted me back or something, but I was like, no, I I love you guys. It's just you know you're you're entitled to fuck it up once. When you're did. right about someone, no one can convince you that you're wrong, and not even the artist in question can convince you that you're wrong. That Around the Sun is a bad record. Yeah. So the second record I'm going to talk about is from a band that. Um, I'm bending the rules slightly here for this segment, but I really just wanted to talk about this because I just experienced a live webcast with this band that made me think a lot about them. And that is My Morning Jacket, a band that when I was first introduced to them in 2003, 2004, I was convinced was potentially the greatest rock band in America and had the potential to be the band that like followed me deep into my life and paralleled my dad's experience with bands like the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin and 
Bruce Springsteen and this, you know, this, this band that would grow into a legacy act that would release just like six incredible records in a row and chart your life over that period in time. And then make some weird experimental dad rock records and have that great redemptive record and their live show never gave up. And they were just this band that followed you through your life. There are other bands like that for me. I would say Wilco is like that for me at this point. Um, Radiohead, if they ever made another record, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of bands out there. The war on drugs are becoming like that, but for a period in time, my morning jacket seemed like they were going to be that band. And then they made this very strange, controversial, and ultimately not as cool as it should have been left turn in 2008 by making this record evil urges, a record whose name sounds a lot more badass than it actually is. And a record that they kind of had to pick up the pieces following because it got such horrible reviews and the mix wasn't as all that great. And there are some great songs on that record, but there are some truly, truly awful songs on that album. So about three years later, two, two give, give or take a few years later, they announced that they have a new record coming out, Circuital, and word begins to leak that this is going to be kind of a return to form and that this is going to take listeners back to the experience of It Still Moves. And people got very excited. That very cool space that My Morning Jacket found in at dawn and it still moves and kind of blew out of proportion in Z where they are a very American heartland band who has kind of one foot in the dark arts and one foot in, uh, the carnival type of, uh, uh, snake oil salesman, late 19th century, early 20th century American folklore. And that was just such a cool aspect of this band. And this was going to do that. And I would argue that instead, this album set the band down a trajectory of being one of the most mid-rock bands of the last <laughs> decade. It is rock music without any balls. It is confessional ballads without any spine. It just is there. It's like dental office rock. And you may love this band. I get it. I whatever they've done over the last 10 years, 12 years has just not been for me. I've really tried. I really liked the waterfall part two. I did not love the waterfall. I really, really tried with this latest, their self-titled record that came out in 2021. Sucks. I loved the approach. I loved the chances that they took, but I did not like the end results. Um, I've webcasted a few of their shows and I've, been blown away and been like, there's that magic. And then this last Saturday night, I webcast their peach set and it felt like they just mailed in the entire thing. It felt lifeless. It felt like none of them wanted to be there. It felt like such a paycheck. The set list wasn't very good. The cover selections were incredibly lame. The band didn't have that power and the dynam the dynamics that make them so compelling live. It just felt like they were playing the notes without actually the meaning and the feeling with the notes. And all this to me started with circuital, which was this kind of, Oh shit, we kind of fucked up with evil urges. We got to write the ship here again. And I just find this record to be incredibly vanilla and incredibly beige, but it has one song that I absolutely love, which is the title track circuital, which is seven minutes. And it 
kind of touches on all those aspects of 1999 to 2006, my morning jacket that I always loved where it feels like it's just been plucked out of a, an American folklore, but it also has kind of a darkness and it has hints at, um, kind of the, the nasty bits of American history that, that are, that are dotted throughout. So absolutely love this song. Do not really like this record and really fear that this record put this band on a path towards, I don't know. You can certainly sell out 10,000 people. You can certainly play high billing at a festival, but what is the music ultimately going to mean legacy wise? So love, love, love this band. Wish that we would have another record that came out that gave us that sensation of what my morning jacket's supposed to. I just don't know if it's going to happen. I mean, it's still moves. That's, probably one of my 20 favorite albums of all time oh god that's unbelievable it's an unbelievable record oh my god z the next one z basically takes it still moves and distills it into like bite-sized form still really really good uh with evil urges what's interesting is that the songs that they play from it live are all pretty good but there's like half that record that they don't play just because it sucks (laughs) like with songs like aluminum park and librarian and Thank you to there's like some really bad songs, but like the four or five that they play. I wanna thank you. Yeah, but uh I agree. Security was quite boring. I like reviewed that for Coat Machine Glow because nobody else wanted to. And <laughs> I think that's one of my f- the best reviews you've ever written as well. It's just it flows perfectly. It's biting it's, but so good. It's it's it, it's still up there. Yeah, I mean the jacket is I don't know. Like I watched the 2016 Logging Webcast. Oh that concert was incredible. Oh my god! That was yeah. 2016 Logging was like incredible and fiery and definitely played for people on drugs in mind. It got jammy. It had this great like peak of like David Bowie's Rebel Rebel, which was like done from a strong place. And I too watched the recent Peach. Uh, the webcast and Peach Fest, and it was, yeah, they mailed it in. Like, it was too tight, and it just sounded almost like studio-quality sound. It's kind of weird to get on a band for being too tight, but it just wasn't a lot of life in it. And their latest, the self-titled album, I think, is horrendous. I kind of, I I like Waterfall 1 and 2, but then I have a friend who saw them before Peach Fest, in New Haven, Connecticut, and said it was like the jammiest My Morning Jacket set he's ever seen. So who knows? Maybe they, he had some bad oysters and went on stage and had to throw up, or I don't know. Hard to say. <laughs> but yeah, Jacket for having an album as good as It Still Moves. It's, they're an interesting... One day somebody will write a, write a very interesting like biography on my morning jacket. I'd be very curious to read about that band's internal dynamics and what happened and where it happened. I kind of blame the Muppets, but I just want to read yeah. to the listeners here um, the set list from that lock and set because like this is where like this place of love for this band comes from is like this is this is one of the greatest. This is the set that I think convinced me that webcasts are sometimes better than being there because I was on my couch just texting with friends like 
absolutely on a high. This set is Victory Dance into Compound Fracture, into Off the Record, into Securital, Steam Engine. The debut of What the World Needs Now is Love, which was so pertinent and just such a My Morning Jacket moment. Lay Low into I'm Amazed, Spring, State of the Art, Phone Went West, which is what they opened the Peach set with, one of our favorite songs. And uh, I wish that that portended to better things at the Peach show. Into Could You Be Loved, Megiddo, Purple Rain, Wordless Chorus, into Touch Me, I'm Gonna Scream, Part 2, into Rebel Rebel, ending it out with One Big Holiday. I mean, that is, there are a couple of songs I wish could be thrown in there, but whatever. That is an amazing 18 song set. Plus, I mean, the phone went west of Lock and was like 17 minutes long. It was, they milked it for every. It was so good. Everything it was worth. So, yeah, definitely. I might have to go watch that after I get done recording this podcast, just because that's <laughs> that's that's how good it was. I mean, I have really good friends whose taste I respect. My Morning Jack is their favorite band. 100%. That's the kind of band that yeah. I don't agree but i don't think you're crazy because they have the discography and the live prowess so yeah that could be your favorite band it's totally that's acceptable and fine it's just some of the edge like you said has been missing for a while i don't know but we still have uh, i've got to get to um you have to get to your last one i have to get to my last one Favorite songs from albums we don't like but artists we love. Tragically Hip, one of my favorite bands of all time. Favorite Canadian band other than Rush. Of course, the frontman Gordon Downey uh, died tragically of a geoblastoma in 2016. The guy got an incredibly raw deal for... He meant so much to so many people. Alas, he put out a record. I think it came out in 2008. Not entirely positive. Called We Are The Same. This was an album that was produced by Canadian Bob Rock. Their uh, second album produced by Bob Rock, who kind of looks like uh, Vince Neil after he got his Botox. Bob Rock, notorious for putting beds of strings and orchestrations on records, building in their own image, over-commercialized, crazy, heavy, heavy hand. Just ask any Metallica fan about what Bob Rock did to the Black Album, they will go on a rant about how he's the wickedest man alive. And this, the production on this Tragically Hip Album has to be heard to be believed. It's probably, the songwriting is bad enough on its own, and then when Bob Rock drapes over like orchestras of strings, like he's trying to do like We Are The World style stuff, it's so much, it's horrible. It's by far their worst record. And yet, Pre-release single, Morning Moon, great song. Lead-out track on the record, great pedal steel, kind of sounds a lot like Buffalo Springfield, very tender, well-written, a great song. And I heard this, I'm like, great. The Tragically Hip have done it again, irrespective of the fact that the guy producing the record's kind of a jerk. And then I heard the next song, which had this like lazy harpsichord bit, and it had like the third song, it had like a drum machine, muted brass just like it was it was bad and tragically hip fans know it's bad and once again i wrote about it for coke machine glow i trashed it and my review is actually quoted and someone wrote a biography about the tragically hip and like quoted my review as saying like 
this guy hated this record, and here's why. But in the footnotes, they called me David J. Goldstein, which, <laughs> what the fuck, dude? That's not my middle initial. <laughs> I mean, thanks for uh, referring to my review, but, you know, that's, that's not cool. Anyhow, Morning Moon's a good song. We Are the Same is a terrible record that for the longest time wasn't streaming. I don't know why. Now it's streaming. I just figured maybe they thought it was so bad they were embarrassed by it, but who knows? Be probably Bob Rock used some weird sample that had to get cleared. I don't know. So, yeah, if you want to hear that garbage now, it's streaming. Other than that, Bulletproof discography. Every record's good. Which is such a an interesting thing when a band has... I almost think Wilco has that with um, uh, Wilco the album, which I, I almost considered using Bull Black Nova for this segment because I really like that song, and that song rules live. Wilco the album's got at least five good songs on it, though. I don't know. I really don't like Wilco the Come album. on, children. You're acting like no. children. No. Every gender. No? No. All right. <laughs> kind of a Jackson Brown ripoff. Yeah, and it just felt like um, <clears throat> it felt like a, uh, a an Obama campaign ad, like they just wrote it for that. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, but I, I consider using it, but I, I just I don't personally have a lot of fun talking I about Wilco the album. Um, anymore. I like I, li- I, I like talking about um, everything that has happened with Wilco since uh, the whole love. But I selected for my last pick here a band that I continue to see live, and I feel like their live show is getting so much better. And that is not to say that it was not in a good place. It just it just keeps getting better and better. While the music that they're writing, I don't want to say it's getting worse, but it's getting further from what I loved about this band when I first found them. And that is His School, The Messenger, and their most recent record from 2021, uh, Quietly Blowing It. An album that... 100% agree, by the way. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I don't want to just like compare artists in this segment, but like I feel like it's the best way to communicate this. I, I almost feel like what His Call the Messenger and MC Taylor, the, the lead member of His Call the Messenger, are going through or have been going through is almost akin to what Jason Isbell was going through post-Southeastern, where Jason Isbell was still writing good songs and his live show was getting really good. But part of what made Southeastern so brilliant was the fact that Isbell really lived this challenging period and then and his successive records, while there were moments, there was a lot of, he was trying, it sounded to me at least like he was trying to recreate the magic of Southeastern while writing from the perspective of a guy who's now spending the majority of his life in a studio or on a touring bus. And so it wasn't as rich from a storytelling standpoint. And I get that sense from MC Taylor for slightly different reasons, but you know, his School of the Messengers records from 2014, 2017, Lateness of Dancers, Heart Like a Levy, and Hallelujah Anyhow. I mean, that is a three-album run that I would put up against pretty much anything from any other artists of the 2010s. It is 
deeply rooted in Southern America. It gives a new perspective to what the South brings to America in a period in time where there's renewed aggression and uh, angst between, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the perceived values of the South and the perceived slights of the South with other parts of uh, America. Artists like Isbell and his called the messenger showcase the beauty and the humanity and the empathy that can come out of there. And those three records really speak as like a testament to what the South means to America from someone who is not in the South in, in a way that is very heartwarming and appealing and showcases love and empathy amidst a lot of darkness and a lot of, uh, overall, you know, large scale human rights abuses, if you will. And since then terms of surrender and quietly blowing it have felt like music that is being written in the style of this really authentic, personalized, narratively driven music that was written but from the perspective of someone who is not struggling to write that anymore. And, and I say that, I don't know. I, I don't want to wish any artist suffering that's unnecessary. I think that all artists should be happy, healthy, well-paid, being able to live in nice houses and send their kids to good schools and, and have the, reap the rewards of their work. But sometimes, I think it's very clear, that a certain amount of struggle and suffering does influence art in a positive way for listeners. And so when I hear records like quietly blowing it from his golden messenger, it sounds like he is writing a record about a guy who is blowing it and, and, you know, and about a country that is blowing this opportunity, but it doesn't have the girth. It doesn't have the dirt on it. It doesn't have the, 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 the nastiness about it that kind of needs to speak to what it's about. So, so ultimately you're re- you're left with like a PG 13 version of what could have been a really good R rated movie. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. It just doesn't appeal to my tastes and my desires and what I'm looking for from music. What's interesting though, is that one of my favorite Hisco and messenger songs way back in the way back opens this record. And conversely, like I said, at the start of this, the last couple of his called the messenger shows I've seen have blown away anything I was seeing during the 2014 to 17 period in time and really showcase a band that is listening to each other from an improvisational standpoint that is stringing together excellent set lists that is throwing really cool covers into their shows and generally putting together an incredible live show. Their new organist absolutely rules huge shoes to fill by replacing Phil cook did it with flying colors. Their bassist is one of my favorite people in all of music to watch play music. And his grooves are just completely infectious. Their drummer, it's like a jazz drummer. Their guitarist looks like Kenny Powers and he just like absolutely shreds. Like the live band is amazing, but the studio cuts over the last four years have left me wanting something more, but still amidst all of this on quietly blowing it there is a song like way back in the way back that i absolutely love and the bass player looks like william h macy's character um little bill from boogie nights <laughs> it's totally true <laughs> i agree with you very much with regard to his golden messenger uh the three records like you said laid this of dancers heart like a levy holly anyhow there was a little 
I guess MC Taylor has always been a happy warrior, but there was yeah. kind of like a darkness undercurrent running through those records that gave them some heft. And the last two albums, I don't want to call it a shtick. It may be too happy of a happy warrior. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's he's a dad, he's a father of daughters, so I can relate. He's really big on like teachers and public education. Like, you know, he's I hate to say anything bad about Mike Taylor just because he's totally he's one of the good guys. Totally. But the goodness may have resulted in slightly less interesting albums. You know, he has one coming at the end of August that I've I'm very curious to hear. But it's called Jump for Joy, so I'm already my guard's up a little bit. Yeah, but then again, I'm going to see him. I think he's coming through here in December. I believe he's playing two nights at the Ogden, um, which ah. I've now seen him. He'll gone Globe Hall to the Bluebird to the Ogden. It's a, his his live show. He's he's attracting more fans back, and so I I'm very happy about that. But it is slightly at the expense of that, you know, just kind of nastiness that that was. You you said it right. It was an undercurrent to very uplifting, powerful, soulful music that was coming out of those three records in the mid 2010s that um, was just a stew of music that I absolutely loved. So I hope for listeners out there that you understand that we love all six of the artists that we shared here. I hope that that came across clearly. I hope that it's clear that maybe some of the music that we reference here is some of your favorite music by these artists. And that's totally okay. This did not fully connect with us the same way that 2004 and 2016 fish doesn't fully connect with everyone, but amidst it all, and I think the point of all of this was there was a ton of good music made, even when artists are going through kind of challenging transitions. So let's do a mashup of songs that we love, artists that we love on their clunker records. Sometimes excellent artists have clunker records. You know what? Why don't you uh, write us, tell us your clunker records of excellent songs, and we can talk about them on the podcast. We'd love to do that. So we're going to get to that right now. <laughs>
dust have a pale blue light You're coming through to me in black and white When we were made of dreams You're blowing down the shaky's teeth You're here in my heartbeat In the record-breaking Not one more night, not one more kiss, not this time, baby. No more of this. Takes too much skill, takes too much will. It's too revealing. You came, you saw, just like the law. You married young, just like your mom. You tried and tried You made me slide You left me reeling With feeling On the rising curve Where the ways of nature Will test every nerve I want the sun To shine on me I want the truth to set me free I wish the fathers would leave With the voice so strong it could knock me to my
Guess for Labor Day Today's the first day I ain't seen a grape Too much steam from across the lake From across the lake Hey, that's a morning Yeah I'm not making straight You said someone's pain When something's too cheap Somebody's paying something You said someone's paying something Under a morning moon Yeah Say those little things that don't make anyone feel better Say one little thing that could make me feel better Under this morning moon, Episode, huh? I thought it was very fun. I really enjoyed this episode. I enjoy all of them, but this one was particularly. I'll listen back to this episode. I already know everything that's in it, but I'll still listen back to it anyway. <laughs> Those are the good episodes. There are a couple that I haven't listened back to, but they're the ones that I'm like, I want, I want to just spend a little bit of time in that. So, hope you all out there enjoyed this. Um, and I hope for everyone's sake out there. That fish summer tour, which is kicking off in a matter of days, is incredible, joyful, dark, is goes into deep jams. I hope you all get a bust out that you've been chasing. I hope you all get a set that you're like, mm, I'm going to listen to that set for the rest of my life. Like Those are just amazing moments. I hope that that's what's in front of all of us. If not, 
still going to be interesting. It's still going to be fun to talk about. And uh, we're all still going to have a good time, you know? Everyone's, that's the thing. Even the worst fish shows, we still have a good time at it, you know? I met Dave in the middle of two of the lamest fish shows I've ever seen in my entire life. And look, look at us now. Six years later, seven years later, hanging out, talking music, going deep about music, talking about our kids, really close friends, great things can come out of not the best fish shows. That said, we will be back in August with another episode. There is a big anniversary that is being celebrated in August. Hint, 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 hint. And we are going to dive into that period and talk a bit about that era of fish history. Plus spin it out and talk about some music. I don't know what we're going to talk about. I have no idea, but it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm really excited about it. And then we already have our September episode planned. We're going to record an episode that is going to be a very, very special episode. I'm not going to give anything away, but I'm just going to tell you all out there, this is going to be one of the most special episodes that we have ever done and a very unique episode. So very much looking forward to that. Um, I'd encourage all of you out there to email us at beyondthepondpodcast at gmail.com. Send us questions. We will be doing a mailbag dump in both August and September. Have a few questions to get through. Would love to include yours. Ask us about anything, anything at all, mostly music related. And we will, uh, we will address it on the pod. I think the Harry Hood at that Wrigley Field show was like, it was under 10 minutes. It was like, yeah, it was like nine nine minutes and 38, something like that. It's like nine minutes and 38 seconds. It was like the radio mix of Harry Hood. <laughs> the Harry Hood radio mix. My God. I remember thinking like, whoa. That's a One short of those, Harry uh, Hood. Was it good for you? Moments in fish right. history. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, if you made it this far, as always, thank you very much for listening. Brian and I enjoy recording them we enjoy having you listen to them and give us feedback so come back in august hopefully we'll have been brought to tears by fish's summer 2023 tour we'll hold hands we'll sing kumbaya we'll talk about fish we'll talk about other bands and we will go beyond the pond